0: Mickey, okay. okay, here we go. Yeah, <laughs> I'm already <laughs> all part. <laughs> I'm already all parts hilarity. Okay, yeah. Joe, how do you say it in Japanese? And how do you say it in English? rig read S Thanks, man. Welcome back to Writers Read Their Early Ship, conversations with authors and artists about the lopsided pleasures of their pre-developed, over-early, unripe work. I'm your guide, Jason Emdy, down in the now and then groove in Gifu Rock City, Japan. My special guest this episode grew up on a farm in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, where she became a competitive swimmer at the national level and was also involved in track, cross-country running, and like me, French immersion. She quit swimming, however, when she went to King's College in Halifax there. A year of work and travel followed Spain, Portugal, Sicily, Malta, and then an MA in political science at Queens, after which she put her new degree to work and became essentially a carny. It's just not a job you hear about very often anymore. Carnies. She then became a winemaker, as you do, and started a winery with her family. After that, all the usual stuff. Got married, moved to Calgary for her husband's job, started a wine agency, whatever that is. What is a wine agency? Don't know. Had two daughters, became active in the slow food movement, moved out with the kids when the marriage fell apart, worked in marketing at a crazy theater company, and eventually applied to do an MFA at UBC which is where we met, sort of. Because she'd always wanted to be a writer and had been scribbling on and off for years. She's now trying to be a writer full-time and also maybe teach and also maybe become a master gardener. Yeah, why not? Her first full-length poetry collection, Farm, Lot 23, comes out next spring from Gasparo Press. Distinguished listeners, it could only be Tonya, Laylee. is that right? That's it. I knew I would I would quiver at the at the at the gate there. Tonya Laley, welcome to the show, Tonya. How are you? Good.
1: Yeah, I I gave you way too much information. I think that was a problem. No, it's such so action-packed. Yeah. Uh I have a very small literary bio, so I have to, you know, beef it up with other things. Now,
0: what is a wine agency, first off?
1: Yeah, I buy uh wine from wineries and sell it to retailers and restaurants.
0: Hmm. It's a middleman. It's a wine middleman, middle woman. The middle person. Yes. Is that more interesting or more fun than making wine or having your own winery?
1: Way less interesting ah. and way
0: way less fun.
1: Yeah, it's like taking everything that I love about the wine business out of it (laughs) and leaving all the administration and hustling.
0: Uh. That's
1: basically what a wine agent does. I mean, I will say meeting like restaurant folks, especially people who are, you know, starting their own restaurant business, um, and people who are super into wine and, and talking about wine with them is great. I like that. Mm. Yeah. But there's a lot of just like driving around, dropping it, being a salesperson, you know, and I'm not that good of a salesperson. <laughs> I'm really not like I basically convinced I'm, I'm better at convincing people they don't want to buy this product.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you ship to Japan?
1: No, no, no. I mean, I have, when we had our winery, the family winery, we did
0: have some ice wine that went to Japan. Let me, let me ask you a couple of questions about writing and so okay. on. Sure. Okay. I've never asked anybody this before, but it came up in a, in a recent interview about comfort books. Mm. And I think that, I think kids have comfort books, right? You know, the books that you ask your parents to read again and again. But I'm curious about, you know, when you grow up, if you still have a comfort book, a book that you go back to purely for comfort. Do you have a book like that? I I do.
1: Um probably a couple. I I immediately I immediately think of um my childhood comfort book though, now that you've said that, which was Pierre Bear. By Patricia Scary, I guess, I think she's Richard Scary's wife. Anyway, Pierre Bear was a, um, a hunter in the north and was in fact a bear. And I think what I found comforting about it was he lived alone, <laughs> which maybe provides some insight into uh, my life choices later. Um, and he had sat in most of the illustrations, he sat in front of a fire and he, was surrounded outside by a massive forest. And so I think I just liked being in that world. Um, and then my comfort book became Summer Rain by Marguerite Durat. And I think it's just the atmosphere of the book, the atmosphere of her writing. And it might have to do with the fact that the original is in French and there's some, Echo of that, and some comfort in that. I don't know. And it's a slim book. I really like slim books.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and how many times? Sorry, what's the title of you of the summer?
1: Th- summer rain. Even summer the time. I find mm. comforting. And, yeah, and then the Little Prince. I think it's my other comfort book.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Even really. now, do you go back to that?
1: You know what it's in my room it's in my bedroom and it's on a table but with like 50 other books yeah. uh, so i keep looking at it and thinking i'll go back part of part of not going back for me is i came to reading fairly late i didn't read a lot through high school i was just too tired and busy and my home my childhood home wasn't conducive to reading my dad read um and my sister read like in the middle of the night. <laughs> but my home was very much a a doing place. Mm. Uh, my mom was not a reader and she was she's an action person and she's restless. So yeah, I do. I I and so the, what I was getting at was I think I having still some anxiety about there being, and and probably everyone does, but so many books to read that I can't go back and read.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. One question I wanted to ask you was if you could go on a, what's the best time period? A, th- a t- three-month writing retreat, everything paid for, All you have to do is go there and write for three months. Any building, any country in the world, where would you like to go?
1: Well, I think I'd go somewhere I've already been that feels like a thin place, as they say, you know, where it feels very spiritual for me, another kind of home, which would be La Romita School of Art in Umbria in Italy. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a monastery, um, an old monastery converted to an art school. And it's in kind of at the it's in an industrial town, which is really cool. And it's not um Umbria is or Umbria is is not Tuscany, right? It's like it's land it's landbound. I think it's the only landbound province in Italy, and it's not overrun with tourists and you're kind of more connected to people who live there. Anyway, this school is surrounded by olive trees. Um, And the olive grove, I think, is 500 years old. And they still make olive oil from it. And I don't know what else other than it's super simple. Like, uh it's not a fancy place. Simple rooms, shared bathrooms. And there would be other people making art there. And, um, and I've, I've been there three times and it would be nice to go and not pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And I'm learning Italian. So, you know, it's mm. going to be so different this time. The mm-hmm. other place I should say Nova Scotia is a huge spiritual kind of home for me. Somehow I stay spiritual and just that I feel good there you know and in a like peaceful i don't know why um and no particular like in the whole province i've been all over that province Mm. i
0: feel good there i've never been there what is it like
1: oh what is it like slower everything's slower there's an easiness to the people um i love the accent there's a sense of humor like a kind of like people aren't really trying too hard to be other than themselves. I'm, you know, that's always that's an outsider view, and so I'm, I'm making it probably more, sound really quaint in ways that it isn't. <laughs> uh, but that,
0: you know, I do have family. Yeah, yeah but that's okay. I mean, why uh, not? You know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, and that's where the the publisher of my first book is too. there wow. in- Yeah. Just so. for that. It's great. I did for that. I mean, come on. Yeah. Um.
0: How's Calgary? I mean, is Calgary okay? Calgary is okay. I mean, I have a
1: way of making the best of things, which doesn't always feel good for me. (laughs) But I immediately related to the, the landscape, like the sky and the space. And then, you know, when I first moved to Calgary, I... I hung out with kind of the food community, which was pretty great. Like people in this little food movement who were just starting to do some interesting things in the city. And it was all really accessible. So it's not overwhelming like Toronto can be. Mm. Um, so I felt it was like easy to, to know it's easy to know Calgary and it's easy to meet people and feel also like you can be part of what's happening and in part of, yeah, part of uh, what changes are happening. You feel like you belong to that here. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah. So I like that. And otherwise, I don't know. I also like kind of, um, could be anywhere, like I could be anywhere and find a way to feel good. I think, honestly. But, yeah. I, and I also love, you know, I love the mountains and I ski. And mm. it's funny when people talk about Calgary, they often immediately talk about the mountains, like they leave the city. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Standard answer to the question, what is there to do in Calgary? Well, you can go skiing.
0: But does it have a, a a good writing culture, do you think? I mean, do you know a lot of people who write? Do you hang out with writers?
1: I do hang out with writers.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I don't
1: – it has a much bigger writing community than I'm aware of, you know. Uh, I yeah. often end up uh, hearing about writers who are from Calgary whom I've never heard of. <laughs> Um, but like, like I feel quite close to the poetry community. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, but I, and I do write with quite a number of people. Like, we meet regularly and write, uh, and we exchange work and it feels supportive. Mm. Mm -hmm. I worked in the, the theater world for a bit in marketing, but I got a sense of that landscape as well and how challenging it has been for theater companies to survive but there's also been a lot of money at times um, and a lot of money given to and directed at the arts oil and gas right Um, I mean I say a lot it's probably like a tiny drop compared to what maybe they could have given But the flow has been there in that direction. And then again, it's that sense of uh, possibility because it's not saturated with artists. There's a, yeah, you get, you have a feeling of, yeah, of possibility. There's room to go. There's a place to kind of undiscovered territory.
0: Yeah. Um, We should get to some of your early shit, Tonya. Yeah, yeah. What do you have? What What do you got? Like, well, you know, and I wish I
1: had more poems, like more of those high school poems that sound like really bad song lyrics. Yeah. You know? You do know. Um, I do I didn't, know. My sister wrote those. I didn't write those. But I did I did try and write a short story that's pretty embarrassing.
0: Okay. How long is it?
1: Oh, the, the whole story is way too long. It's
0: like, Three thousand words or something. How old were you when you wrote it?
1: Um, like eighteen, maybe older, <laughs> maybe, <not. laughs> maybe, maybe twenty. God, okay. I hope not, but yeah.
0: Do you remember writing it?
1: Mm, I remember the impulse to write it.
0: What was the impulse?
1: That I wanted to be a writer.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and I remember my parents. Being encouraging, so encouraging about it in a performative way. I'll explain that. That when they had their f- friends over for dinner, they got me to read. It. I can't believe I agreed to it. I feel so. F- I still feel like I should write and apologize to those people. One of them, I think,
0: is still alive. <laughs> Did you write it longhand? Was it?
1: No, I wrote it on the Mac computer. Like the what, what was the first? Those early Mac, With
0: The green screen and the.
1: Yeah, Macintosh. Yeah, like man. Macintosh. Okay. Um, and then you
0: printed it out on the, on the dot
1: matrix. The yes. yes. Dot matrix. Is that what they're called?
0: I think so. <laughs> it, was- right
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it made a lot and of noise and took a long time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it peeled off the edges, right? The perforated edges. <laughs> yes. I did all the and I stapled it, and I even chose like I think it's Palatino, like decent font. And the title is, you know, I don't know, many points larger than the text. It starts with a big first letter, like as if I were publishing it.
0: All right, hit me with the first two paragraphs. So, okay, yeah, is that okay.
1: Sure. Right. The title, the title is Edwin's Wagon O' Goodies. He had always.
0: <laughs> I know you're on the edge of your. <laughs> Edwin's wagons, old goodies.
1: Yeah, isn't okay. that
0: something you want to dive into? Yes. Yeah. No, totally.
1: He had always been told by the avant generation generation jury. I don't even know what that means. That he was an entrepreneurial type, a go getter, a trendsetter, a doer. And if these labels were false in any way, this one wasn't. He was a salesman, the selliest of salesmen.
0: The selliest?
1: Selliest. I made that word up.
0: It's pretty good, though.
1: Indeed, it was once said by a retired teacher, no less, that Edwin could sell water to a drowning man. And if this sounds like a bloated tale, I assure you that a spin through one of Edwin's business ventures will dehydrate, oh boy, any initial suspicion of convenient narrative saturation. (laughs) Edwin's sales career was not stereotypical for he managed to avoid the greatest humiliation of the average sales guy from cars to vacuum cleaners to vacuum cleansers to vacuum parts to long-distance telephone service packages, and eventually volunteering for the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Church of Latter-day Saints. The logic of the final descent was that if you were going door-to-door anyhow and not making money, you might as well invest your soul and hope for returns in an afterlife. But this was not Edwin's fate. Edwin steered clear of vacuum cleaners and evangelists. Those are the first two paragraphs. It's very painful, Jason.
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> what is it? What does it feel like? Very uncomfortable. Yeah. But you know why? Actually, but why is it uncomfortable?
1: You know what? It's not that different with how it feels now, like reading a draft, to be perfectly honest. Oh yeah. You know, I feel but what I what's uncomfortable about this is the striving. You know, it's like I'm, I feel like every sentence is, I want to be a writer. (laughs) I want to be a writer. You know, there's no like, there's no story. There's no being in the place. It's thing, it's just sentences uh, that are acting out the act of writing. Does that make sense?
0: That makes perfect sense. Just sentences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. See, for me, the question is always, what is the value? if any, of early work. Mm. You know, and I think early work is full of sentences.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's nowhere to be in this for me. Like I feel, yeah, driven out from the page rather than invited
0: in. Yeah, Right, yeah, Mm -hmm. not invited in. But how do you learn how to do that? How do you learn how to... Bring people in instead of just, okay, this is a side note that probably won't go in the podcast, but in grade 12, I was writing a lot of very bad poetry and a lot of very egotistical poetry. And a friend in a, in my English class wrote a poem about me. I think the title of the poem was Jason MD's poetry. And the first, the first line of the, of his poem was ego, ego, ego. Spouting oh. from his pen, right?
1: That's amazing.
0: <laughs> I did think years later, oh, he was spot on.
1: Mm-hmm. My
0: my focus was entirely on myself, of course. And he wasn't a poet, but he slipped into poetry just to give me the message that, yeah, hey, stop <laughs> stop being about yourself all the time, you know. Oh,
1: he slipped into poetry just to give you the message. There's an insight into poetry right there. I love it. <laughs> that was his only way. Like, where do you go to speak your truth?
0: Write a poem. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And why not? So there's mm. still hope for us all. Do you, do you still struggle with that too?
1: Oh, of course. I feel like that's part. Of, that's just part of the work, the constant yeah. work of writing. Absolutely yeah yeah. and I, I think it's like the work of not getting attached to outcome, you know, and mm. being able to stay with it.
0: sit with it,
1: stay with the work, sit with the work. And I think you learn by just returning constantly. Mm. And I think you create um, yeah, I mean, it's all it's it's all the cliches, but a trust in how it works, like how it works to show up, and that things will come but not on your timeline.
0: South hippies in San Francisco, and they wear wild clothes and long hair, and they have um, their own philosophy of life. I don't know about you, Tonya. I can't stop scribbling, right? I'm constantly scribbling. Me too. Whether it comes to anything or not, I just love scribbling in notebooks.
1: And I'm getting to the, like, I'm actually okay with that. Like, yeah, I'm starting to understand, oh, this is just how I want to be in the world.
0: Yeah. I saw a beautiful interview with Leonard Cohen where he said, I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just blackening pages.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And I thought, yeah, me too, man. That's yeah. great. I mean, for for a guy that great to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just blackening pages.
1: And for it to stay that way, honestly, I think that's the trick. Because that private relationship that you have between the page, you know, that you have with the page.
0: Just you and the page.
1: Yeah, that's it. Mm. That is the juice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. How are you with the page? Like, Because I'm quite strict. If I fuck up. Or just it does, it just doesn't look right. I'll correct it. How about you?
1: No, I'm not. I have all the allowance of the the world for myself. (laughs) My writing is appalling. Like, oh, there are so many malaprops and misspellings. And, like, no, don't you think? Didn't you mean this word? Like, if I go back and read my journals, yeah, it's a mess. But for me, it's the, the flow has to, I have to allow the flow to happen and my writing can't, doesn't keep up with that. And Mm. I just, it needs to be
0: messy. Yeah. Needs to be messy. Wow. Mm -hmm. I wish I could do that. Tonya, give me some advice. What do I need to do? How can I relax? How can I just, I got a million notebooks. How can I just fill them without, you know, feeling,
1: your notebooks are too precious. Just take a scrap piece of paper and then you can always like, Tape it into your notebook if you want. Yeah. It. You need, like, a file or something that – a different format where – and you can close your eyes. Like, close your eyes and start writing.
0: Just let it go.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. You're right. You're right. But these notebooks are so great and so beautiful. I I just –
1: Don't do it in your notebook. Allow yourself that. You have a, obviously – The notebook means something for you.
0: Do that stuff somewhere else. I keep trying to remember uh, Michael Stipe's admonition, which was allow the mistake. I feel so much
1: to that. Like it often, just the gift of that, being able to be wrong.
0: My, My hang up is that I'm so interested in the notebooks of the people I admire
1: yeah, I know. But have you looked at uh, like Elizabeth Bishop's, uh, drafts of One Art, for instance?
0: No, I haven't.
1: Embarrassing. Are they really? Yeah, and it's so, what amazing, and they're published. Like you can buy a book that show all her different drafts of, of the poem One Art, among others. Right. And it's so instructive. Cause yeah, it's like it's embarrassing. The first one, like
0: what? What she allows herself to say? I guess it's just getting over that. Yeah. Would you like to read something from your upcoming book?
1: Yeah,
0: I'll read. I'll read two. Okay. Um, Do you want to say anything about the book in a general way first?
1: Yeah, sure. This is. Um, It's a book about my family farm, which means that it's a book about the relationships there, but also about the change from kind of a self-sustaining family farm to monoculture and industrial agriculture. So it touches on some of that. Um, and just some of the underlying sort of logic that informs farming or that informed our farming. And I picked up on as a kid. And then the sensual kind of presence of that place, which goes beyond the farm and does a lot of relating to how the farm is different from the other land around it where I played and got to hunt to hang out. And I was very free. To go and get lost for a day as a kid me too yeah which was wonderful and not many children have that agreed yeah okay so this is the first one's called abundance and it's kind of challenging that notion of abundance but um, that's all i'll say abundance the pumice pile heaps and we load on more dry cake from the press that spreads over the quack grass to the rototiller and forklift to the front-end loader and into dirt tracks packed by the Case International. Seeds countless throw up wood dankness from the lowest spoiling layers. Skins reek vinegar in a volatile heat. Rats assemble a mischief, unafraid to meet. The word on the farm is piles. Piles of berry moth, Japanese beetles, starlings, brush, grapes to pick, downy mildew, unpaid bills, buds dead by frost, thistles, loose wires, crooked end posts, bull canes, leaf curl, suckers below the graft, powdery mildew, hail damage, crown gall, split trunks, drought stress, wood dead from winter. Things that could never form a pile get piled, like rain, Humidity, smoke, wind, heat, sun, the rot stench in a row of broken down Pinot Noir, too far gone to harvest. She says piles, my mom has piles to do. I parse the laundry pile onto the line, bra, shirt, sock, panty, pinch each wet piece to the wire, feel, feel lifted by the detergent's fake freshness, that smell in human order, and weight the empty plastic basket with a rock so it doesn't blow away.
0: It's wonderful.
1: I realize. Thank you. I realize I need to get a bit of water. <laughs> okay. This one, I actually might read three because this one's pretty short. And, um, okay. Mm,
0: Whatever you want to read. It's okay with me.
1: Peaches ripe ones become rare as if accidents only left off flatbeds too soft for market or a straggler on a branch ripe for being missed i think of almsie's line in the english patient it is a very plum plum so hard it became in the new industry of things to locate a peach peach unless you grew one for yourself to eat i think about the new reaches of peaches the cultivars we've bred and breed for travel. And that year after the war supports ended, when my grandfather still farmed peaches and Wentworth canners closed, unable to compete with plantation agriculture to the south, all around the township, peaches ripened, then rotted in piles.
0: English Patient is the, I've heard the book is kind of a, Drag, is that true?
1: <laughs> I th- Yeah, I don't know. I honestly don't have good perspective. I feel like I I gave, I was generous with the book because I liked the movie, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fair to say. Last one. Okay, this is called Tying Vines. This was written in Bronwyn's class largely. We bring vine wood to the wire with twine Even the grass churns blue, a cool smell broadcast received on stiff antenna in fields between rows out of order. Cordons rusted like chestnut spring back into my hands, bent toward another tendency. My frigid fingers are careful not to knock the new buds off. They have risen as fish bladders, ancient impulses swaddled in flannel, flaunting an involute softness, embedded. We wait, then, for the sun's hot disturbance to first turn out pink lines in folds, then spread green skin after skin to plump the gold, fruiting bodies to come fall. Meanwhile, over the river, midline, the same cordon rust tails a hawk, surveils, soars, What about the wired vines, pruned at ends, IV lines, dripping where they've lost the vein? At my feet, a robin rustles last summer's dry grass, picks a twine and dropped, takes off, trailing the white strand.
0: That's pretty great.
1: Well, it's, yeah.
0: Well, it's what? No. Yeah, it
1: just is. Yeah, it just, I don't know. It's great, but it's. It feels true to the experience of being in that place for me.
0: What is, What does literary success look like to you, Tonya?
1: Yeah, no, to me, like that it is like the kind of, there could be improvements, I'm sure, you know, but it's it is my, yeah, my relationship to that place that I'm trying to share. And when I feel like, I go back to that place when I read the poem, then that's literary success for me. Yeah. No, I don't get all the, like, and I hope that that changes and evolves and that I, you know, my ear gets better or the more I'm, I write. Um, but I don't know how else to measure it without getting taken off your own course. You know,
0: do you ever get this? You go, okay, I got it. W- write in words, but it's just a trick. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh,
1: absolutely. It's just yeah. a trick. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 And the trick is fun and it's great to pull off the trick. Yeah. But it's not it. I know. And often for me, it's to get it simpler. I need it to be less.
0: Yeah. To break it down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And closer and closer.
1: I don't know. Even when you're <laughs> still Even before.
0: then. Ooh. I've broken it down to almost haiku quality, but it's still a lie.
1: Yeah, like I get enamored with the craft game.
0: But then that's where artifice is part of what we're doing. Yeah, of course. And then the question is, what do I want? The perfect haiku or the honest haiku?
1: I know, exactly. What I want to read is I know what I want to read. I want to read the honest haiku. I want to punch the perfect haiku. With yeah, faith. yeah. Sometimes actions like I guess that that even depends because sometimes I'm in the mood for the. I want just the beauty without the honesty. I
0: I hate to feel like I'm making stuff up.
1: I know, I know that I struggle with that. When when I had my thesis review. Um, Sherida was my second reader and she challenged me by saying like, the poems are so quiet. They're so quiet. Like basically how can you like dress them up a little bit or like play with the form or, and that felt like, sure. I didn't want to do that. Like I felt like maybe if the material were asking for that.
0: Right. Yeah. I
1: don't know. It didn't feel right to me. Mm.
0: Mm. Maybe that's where we should be always. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't know. I really don't know. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I honestly do feel that most of the time.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: But I want to keep doing it.
0: Yeah, me too. I can't stop doing it.
1: Mm-hmm. I
0: mean, if I could stop doing it and do something useful, like build stuff or whatever, I would, but no. this yeah. is all I can do, actually. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I really enjoyed your book and I'm going to. Oh, it. Yeah, thank it's you. in my living room and I, I pick it up, you know, when I'm hanging out in there. Yeah, we'll stay you. there for a while.
0: Yeah. I mean, again, that's what I could do at the time. That's mm-hmm. the book I could write. And I'm so glad I found a sympathetic publisher, which is, I guess, what you've got with your book coming out.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, yeah, I sent it somewhere. I thought would understand. Yeah, yeah.
0: And they do.
1: They do. Yeah, yeah. No. I mean, I sent. I sent it to a slush pile, right? The way they work. He write, wrote like a handwritten uh, a letter by hand in calligraphy. That was the acceptance, which was really lovely.
0: Are you involved in the um, discussions about cover and pictures and? Oh, well,
1: they make the books there They like, actually have a printing press. And so they, um, they pick out paper stock, which I got to choose, like, my preference is for color because they order their paper from, from Europe. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's probably all I'll get to do. Their books are very simple in design, but they're, they, use beautiful paper and they have like the you know the hand stitching
0: well all by one (laughs) okay lovely yeah can i just say what a pleasure what a what a treat to talk to you man oh seriously
1: (laughs) yes no i i i feel that too yeah thanks hey go get some sleep
0: okay good night Have you ever had a hangover so calamitous you felt like you'd been keel-hauled? Yeah, me either. Welcome to the end of the podcast as we know it. Many thanks to Tanya. It was a pleasure to be her classmate and it's a continuing pleasure to be her pal. I really dug those poems too. Such solid physical detail. Too tasty. What else? I just finished Pierre Burton's Magisterial Klondike, The Last Gold Rush, which was extraordinary. Check this out. This section is about a, a fire in Dawson City. And then at this crucial moment, late on the night of April 26th, 1899, a tongue of flame shot from the bedroom of a dance hall girl on the second floor of the Bodega Saloon. Within minutes, a holocaust far worse than the town had yet known began. Scores dashed to the river in the glare of the flames and tried to break through the ice to reach the water supply. With the boilers cold, fires had to be set to melt the frozen surface so water could be pumped to the scene. In the meantime, half of Front Street was ablaze. The temperature stood at 45 below, so cold that the heat had little effect even on those standing close to the spreading flames. There was no breath of wind, and the tongues of flame leaped vertically into the air like flashes of lightning, causing clouds of steam to condense into an icy fog which soon encompassed most of the city. Within this white envelope, the ghostly and frantic figures of the firefighters dashed about ineffectually against the background of the crackling fire. As the dance halls and saloons began to char and totter, Hogsheads of liquor were overturned and whiskey ran into the streets where it instantly froze solid in the biting cold. Behind Dance Hall Row, Paradise Alley was aflame again, and the prostitutes poured, naked and screaming, from their smoking cribs into the arms of the firefighters who ripped off their own coats to bundle up the terrified women. The men on the river had meanwhile burned their way to the water supply. The pumps were started and the hoses, long in disuse, slowly filled. But as the water was ice-cold and unwarmed by boiler heat, it froze solidly long before reaching the nozzles. Then there came a ripping, rending sound as the expanding ice tore open the hoses, followed by a moan of despair as the crowd realized the town was doomed. Why do I have to sweat and curse to make a living? Why can't I just lie around reading Pierre Burton all day? Duh. What am I listening to? A couple of things. Uh, Robbie Robertson's Killers of the Flower Moon soundtrack. Tom Petty's Wildflowers. But mostly Tom Waits. I've been gorging on Real Gone, Alice, Blood Money, and Mule Variations. And all of it kicks ass. All right. All right. I don't think I've watched anything recently. Who has time with all this Pierre Burton to read? Okay, go and buy Tonya's book, Farm Lot 23, when it comes out. And, if you're in a buying mood, go buy my book too, Little Bit Die from Bolero Bird Press. Available all over the place, including, unexpectedly, on Amazon. And if you'd like to support the show by buying a virtual coffee, there's a link in the show description. Thanks again to Tanya. And thanks also to Joe MD for help with the intro, Sasha MD for help with the outro, Wayne MD for the artwork, and DJ Max in Tokyo for the rad beats. And thank you for listening. Back in three weeks. Take care of yourselves. Sasha, did you think that episode was interesting? A little bit. Do you want to come on as a guest one day? No, thank you. Okay, bye. Bye.